I'm Roy Sharples and welcome to the Unknown Origins podcast. Why are you listening to this podcast? Are you an industry expert looking for insights, growing your career, or are you a dear friend helping to spur your old pal on? I created the Unknown Origins podcast to have the most inspiring conversations with creative industry personalities and experts about entrepreneurship, pop culture, art, music, film, and fashion. David Bowie predicted that music itself is going to become like running water or electricity, which in many cases appears to be ringing true with the music industry becoming increasingly technology mediated with tech titans, Apple, Amazon, Google, and Spotify providing more convenient, accessible, and affordable solutions for consumers to download and stream on demand, making it possible to listen to music wherever and whenever we want. What opportunities has this created for artists to innovate and make a living from their art? I'm joined today with artist manager and owner of Trust Management, Dave Cronin, to discuss the music industry and its future opportunities. From Virgin to Rough Trade, Play It Again Sam and Grand Royal Records, then Trust Management, to guide the careers of hundreds of revered artists who have influenced popular culture, the Beastie Boys and Johnny Marr as two examples, Ash, We Are Scientists, Dexies, Baxter Jury and currently Wesley Gonzalez. Dave has worked with artists who have received Ivor Novello Awards, Oscar nominations and NME Godlike Genius Awards and is mentoring the next generation of artists, producers and entrepreneurs at the Academy of Contemporary Music. Hello and welcome Dave. Is this the end of the music industry as we know it? It's a great question, it's a great exclamation to make. Um, no, I, you know, we've always said, um, the collective we, that, you know, it's ever evolving. Um, and if you look at it, it's it's going for a really sort of fast phase at the moment, um, having to adapt. You know, we've we've always, we're always embracing technology within this industry and many of the other creative industries, but also the COVID situation has put barriers up, but also created a lot of new opportunities where forward-thinking people have applied their vision and, you know, and, and, and can create monetization from, you know, from new income streams or existing music streams that maybe weren't sort of within reach of them a couple of years ago, really. How do artists typically make money from music today? It's a split, a split answer. If I speak to any manager, I speak to a lot of managers at the moment. A lot of them have lost the majority of their income because they manage bands who make money from playing live and the associated income streams from live, whether it's PRS income or merch sales, um, branding for their touring, whatever. Um, so they've had that avenue sort of cut off temporarily, but enough long enough to make an effect really. Um, so there's that, but, I did well we, I've, I've used in my lectures because in my in my other world I'm a, a lecturer at ACM you know we found this not paper but this this report that said there were 45 
music income streams and there's probably in two or three more now you know, 47 48 now and and that's how artists make money from music and it's whether it's artists directly or artists through their manager or artists through their label or through their booking agent or their promoter but there's there's a lot of different ways of doing it and I, and I think that any any artist whether they're self-managing self-releasing or an artist with a structure and a team around them they need to sit down and look at these income streams and work out the ones that are applicable to them um, and the ones that they currently exploit how do they get more out of it and there's some that they currently don't exploit and how do they introduce that to their their day-to-day week-to-week activities really I think there's there's a lot of opportunities to do it but there's an element of trial and error there but I think there's there's plenty out there at the moment that's encouraging to hear. What artists would you point towards as being the pathfinders in the new world of capitalizing on these new income streams whilst at the same time remaining um, creative and true to their art? To be honest, I think it would be a lot of artists who aren't really on my radar. Um, You know, there's, my my research is normally based on music that I love or artists that I love, and I you know I'll bring up one example in a minute, which I you know there's been a for me a flawless campaign which has been going on um, over the past week. Um, but I think there's a lot of young bands, artists coming through who are working with a certain specific music genre who are exploiting these these music streams um, and capitalizing on, on the opportunities that are there, but while, as you say, remaining creative at the same time in their own significant way, you know, whether they're using YouTube as a channel or, you know, or Twitch, um, you know, doing direct to consumer sales, um, having a really good Spotify playlist or looking at the other platforms, you know, there's so many ways that they're doing it and, and yeah. being original. Um, and, you know, the other people, you know, the other thing that you have to think about as well, some people don't really care whether these people are original or how creative they are at the moment, because if they like, if they like a song, whatever music genre uh, it is, they're going to be open to it. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's hard for me to say as, you know, you know, as as old as I am, you know, I'm, you know, my music taste is more on, you know, indie alternative rock. And, you know, I listen to a lot of stuff that I grew up listening to in my lifetime. And, you know, I'm listening to a lot of new music, but it's within a, spe- a certain specific music genre, really. So I can only say this from a personal perspective rather than an industry one. Um, but I think the one for me, and I'm due to, I'm going to, send them an email in a bit actually it's it's a Sleaford Mods campaign where for me you know Sleaford Mods are they they probably have appealed to people more my age you know male and female indie um leaning a little bit towards the left on their politics and their their social outlook on life um but you know Sleaford Mods are a a band that have been around for years and and they've always been doing self-releases you know i I, I managed to come across them six or seven years ago. There was a piece in the garden by John Harris who said, you've got to listen to this band. And, you know, I 
respect value what john's saying yeah. and you know i bought the album and and fell in love with it and started following them around and they had this unique thing where they signed to rough trade a couple of years ago but rough trade would give them creative freedom to to do self-releases as well and they could dip in and dip out of the structure um but the last two releases the last album being a, a compilation that came out um you know in the middle of last year 2020 um and then but this uh, last week the, you know the spare ribs album coming out which for me musically has been their 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 best album since mm. you know the, the first album i bought you know i think they're sort of they're back musically but what i would say that they've done right right from the start they've used the process really well where they announced a, a track um Malcolm Indy, which had um uh, a, a collaborator on there called um, Billy No Mates. Billy No Mates is signed to Invader Records, who are again one of the great indie labels, um, uh, run by Jeff Barrow from uh, from Beak, and and uh, was obviously in Portishead years ago. Um, so that's cool. You know, Billy's been sort of coming through, and there's you know, and the thing that inspired her was Sleaford Mods because they write music on a you know uh andrew writes a backing track you know on stage however big the stage and they've played wembley stadium supporting um stone roses it's andrew pressing start on the backing track on a, a laptop and just doing nothing <laughs> and dancing and swaying about while while jason spits vehemently into uh, his microphone and 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 that's it and you know the production values you know they tour you know, they they turned up for, for that show at Wembley in 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 a, a state car because that's all they need, and and yeah. it's brilliant. And my uh, my initial thought was, you know, when I first saw that, you know, I saw them at Esquires in Bedford, and there was about forty or fifty people in there, and I loved it. But my my friend, she was the agent at the time. I just said, to her, "There's a ceiling here, isn't there?" And she went, "No, I don't think there is." And then they started moving into the electric ballroom in. Um, in Ca uh, in Camden, oh, and then yeah. they did the Hammersmith uh, Hammersmith uh, Apollo, um, and it's like, well, they've done it, and now they've just uh, launched an academy tour, and there is no ceiling because people get into it. So, I think what they've done from that announcement with Billy, and they made a great video with Ben Wheatley, uh, one of the US chat shows. I can't remember which one it was, um, but they picked up on it on the week of release so they made a bit of an impact in the states as well and then since then they've just been building it the album's been called spare ribs you know they're looking at the social aspects of it they're looking at sort of gender sort of diversity in the gender gap um and making all these sort of social comments with amazing beats in the background you know Jason for me is more of a poet rather than a, a rock star, you know, in, in yeah. the same way that I look at John Cooper Clark as being a, you know, a, a poet and, and they've just got it right. The artwork, the, the physical formats, the bundles, the merch, uh, the social media, they're all over Twitter um, and they do it great. And, uh, you know, they have a band account, they have a Jason account and Andrew's got his own account um, they've had little things like baking daddy where Jason's cooking muffins in the kitchen and being, you know, there's a lot of, um, you know, um, 
uh, double entendres in there and stuff like that. And it's yeah. just entertaining. And, um, and, but, you know, they, the album came out last Friday. The pre-sales were really good. They've got all the indie stores to support it. They've been giving them test pressings to give away to their sort of loyal fan bases in the indie stores. The album's been cheap, uh, like is, has been priced effectively. I, you know, I, I ordered it online for 15 pounds. Um, which is great for a piece of vinyl. Um, and, you know, they, they've just done it right. And I think with the midweeks, it, it came in at two. I don't know where it's ended up today. I've, I've been stuck in meetings all day, so I haven't seen the final chart position. But if there's a, a band within my music genre who've done it right, then I would say it's Sleaford Mods because they've, they've maximised it without being too crass or too commercial. Yeah. You know, you, you've, everyone feels part of it. And it's when Doves got to number one last year, like everyone was cheering for them because, you know, they'd been on hiatus for 10 years and they came back and they released a great album and it got to number one. And I think it's going to be the same with, with Sleaford Mods where it's down to effectively the band, um, the manager, you know, Jason's, uh, Jason's wife, you know, the collaborators of Billy No Mates and Amy from Amon and the Sniffers um, and Rough Trade as a label who've given them the sort of the creative freedom to, to do this campaign which for me the highlight was they did this thing called um sleaford's mod tv on youtube uh on saturday eight o'clock and you know it was a pre-recorded show and paul stokes the esteemed um uh, uh journalist um interviewed them and interviewed some of the collaborators and things like that and and just as the same maximized the the campaign at the end of the day i thought they did an amazing job and it's something that as a manager i'll be nicking some of the ideas from and trying to incorporate with my artists but as a lecturer as a marketing and social media campaign um you know we take elements of that and discuss it with our students so as a case study it's probably a long-winded case study but i, I think that the way that they've monetized that and the fact that in november they're going to be playing 2,000, 3,000, 5,000 capacity venues for, for a two-piece band. That ain't bad at all. Yeah, no, that's great. And it sounded, it was great to hear you mention um, Rough Trade there as well. And, and it still sounds like they've retained their whole um, independently-minded ethos and being a cooperative and community-centric model where they really exist to empower the, the, the artist and take an artist-led philosophy uh, which is, you know, very similar to what Apple Records did. Not Apple, the tech company, but the Beatles. Yeah, Apple's stiff, yeah. St stiff records that we've spoke about before, and I know they're they're very deep and close to your heart. Mute and factory yeah. records and so forth. And is there still um, within the industry, Dave? Is there still a strong um, independent ecosystem? Um, and is that still you still see a future for that? And also with the majors. Um, are they are they still declining or are they still what what are they these days in comparison? Well, it's it's interesting you say that, Roy, because there's um, we've had the Common Select Committee this week looking at the the breakdown of streaming income and where it's going, and which is obviously a hot potato. Um, and we've been, you know, I'm a member of the MMF, the Music Managers Forum, and you know we've been anticipating this. There's members of the exec team at the MMF who are all over this, um, Annabella uh, Coldrick, who's the one of the main people on the exec there. 
her background is politics and lobbying and um and you know and she's kept a real eye on this and we've had probably about 150 emails between us over the week keeping an eye on uh, an eye on the select committee and what it's doing and i think that the one thing that's apparent i will get back to your point about the independence in in the sec but for the majors the majors and it's it's quite easy to to find the links for this you know we came on and they were so blasé and so obnoxious and they didn't really care and they just want to keep their market share you know there's there's artists who signed to EMI you know I can think of the band that I I work with who was signed to EMI in 1978 and they get an 18% royalty and they get 25% packaging packaging deductions on a stream because they signed their contract in 78 which didn't predict streaming um you know there's obviously the argument where is a stream a sale or a license Mm -hmm. if it's a sale then you'll get that band in question would get 18% royalty, less 25% packaging deductions. However, if it's a license, which it really is, you're licensing your music to Spotify, to Apple, to Deezer, to Amazon to play, um, then there is a chance that you could get 50% of the income. Uh, I know there's a, a, a test case going on in South America at the moment, and I, I don't know where they are with that. But the, the, the majors are still there. They're making, you know, millions of dollars a day, literally, um, on, the, on the income from, from streaming. That artists, the artists aren't benefiting on it from, from the way that they should be because they're tied to these contracts. Um, so they're protected, you know, the majors are protected legally on it. So, you know, I do agree, you know, one of my best friends works at Spotify and Spotify need to be under the microscope, but it's not just Spotify, you know, there's other music platforms there as well, but the majors as well, they just won't relent. You know, I I can't think of any cases where they've gone back and just saying, we're only earning too much money on this. You you need to have more of this because you know, we're just sitting there and, and the money's just rolling in on the back catalogue. So, and there was a piece of music business worldwide um, this week, you know, the, the, the sort of daily subscription um, that you get from them. And there's, a again, a great music business journalist called Ting, Tim Ingham who wrote a piece about the select committee the day after. And he quoted saying, is this the time, um, you know, to you know to gather our thoughts and let's kill the majors because it's you know i know a lot of people in incensed on their attitude towards a fair split of income for the artist as much as you know, say we, we we blame spotify so there's that point and then coming back to the independence you know again you know i mentioned rough trade and, and you mentioned rough trade rough trade is still the model where jeff and jeanette and the whole team uh, I, I obviously worked with Jeff in, in the 80s and I'm so lucky to be surrounded by, a, you know, discs for the Sundays in front of me and, and Carter, the unstoppable sex yeah. machine behind me and other stuff. I got my Smiths one nicked, unfortunately. But there's the what we achieved with the Sundays and, and Carter 
was a real, I've said this before to you, a real two fingers to the majors because yeah. we did it on cheap budget and we did it on passion and knowing where our audience was and, uh, and excellent distribution. And, and Rough Trade is still doing that now where they love their music. Um, the, the artists get a fair deal. You know, I text Jeff Travis the other day. I played the Sunday's album and said, look, this still sounds fresh as it did in, what year does it say there, 1990? Um, and he said, yeah, you know, it's it, it's still an important record, even though Rough Trade were going down the pan at the time, which we were. Um, but the independent structure is probably more important than it's ever been because of because of technology. You can run a label from your house. Yeah. Um, you can be independent. You can do radio plugging to an extent. You can do online marketing. You can do a lot of things from, from your desk. You can mix and master at your desk so that you can get the, 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 the music to release quality um, and independence would be it. And again, I still don't understand why... If, if I work with a band and a major came along, I'd have to have a bloody good argument from their side on why we'd sign to them. Because if they see the potential, obviously they've got the structure in place to, to get it away. But if they see the potential, I as a manager or as an entrepreneur yeah. could probably find a similar team or a better team that's going to cost less money where everyone makes more money from it. Um, you know, the artist, the manager, the third party teams involved with it rather than it all, you know, arguably 82% of the income going back to the label, which, you know, which, which we talked about in the earlier contract. So the, the independence is so important and, and will continue to do so. And, and, you know, they, they know, they know how to put the teams in place. They know how to work with the independent record stores. They know how to sort of trade off goodwill as well. You know, look at Bandcamp and you've got Bandcamp Friday once a month where they waive all fees and, and, and the money goes to the artist. There's a lot of goodwill out there at the moment. And a lot of that is pointed towards the independence, especially more so this week. I think it's been quite a poignant week and, uh, of, you know, the irony of, America changing their democratic <laughs> uh, status. Um, but, you know, I think it's been on, on a lesser scale, but, you know, important for a lot of people. I think it's been a, a, an important week for the music industry in the UK because we know we know who the, who the baddies are. I mean, hey, I hope something, I hope what's happened in America kind of snowballs back over in Europe, especially the UK and he, and he, I mean, the reverse, the whole Brexit nonsense. Right. But that must be having an enormous impact on musicianship, especially the touring, the cross boundary um, issues and challenges yeah. that's going to happen and taxes and all of that. Just, it's just so unnecessarily um, complex and hard. It is. It just, again, it's frustrating because, when when we are allowed to play live again, we're being penalised by. I, I'm not even going to say a government because I'm you know I'm not a fan of this government, but there's a lot to blame there because you know when you talk about the pecking order, you know how fish was number one priority in the in the Brexit stall just before the the deal was signed. God knows, um, and and again. 
even though it's a priority, you know, the fishing trade still got a bad deal out of it. Yeah. Um, and, you know, a lot of people who are in the fishing industry, I told you I'd go off piste, um, <laughs> would, uh, you know, voted for Brexit and, you know, and, and they've got a raw deal now. Yeah. Um, but, you know, for, for simple things, again, you know, knowing the MMF well enough, I know that they've been waving this flag going, what about visas? What about visas? What's going to happen? Any tour manager, production manager, artist manager knows that when we've been touring in Europe for however long, it's a pain in the ass when we go to Switzerland because you have to pro provide a carnet and a carnet is expensive. It's a pain in the ass. If you don't get the paperwork stamped, there's a chance that when you come back to the UK, you can get taxed on what you're bringing, bringing in from, from you. You get taxed on your merch. And, and that situation has now manifested itself to times 26 um, because we're not in the EU anymore. And a really good example of that is if the artist that I manage, Wesley Gonzalez, if Wesley has a UK tour for the new record that's coming out this year, easy, straightforward. We work with the promoters, we work with the agent, but should we want to uh, tour in basic territories, France, Netherlands, Belgium, Germany, if we just wanted to go to those four territories and we had five people in the band and a tour manager, you've got six people. So you've got six people applying for visas to go into France and then Belgium and then Netherlands and then that's Germany. But possibly, we don't know the cost yet, but it's either going to be a hundred pound per lot or a hundred pound per person. So if you're going in there and playing small shows to 100 and 150 people to start getting building your profile over there, you're even before you step onto the territory, you're, you've lost money yeah. and, and not even big merch is going to overcome that. So we're, we're really stuck. We really are stuck. And it, it seems to have been acknowledged more towards the end of this week than the beginning of the week that is, this is a sticking point. But again, I don't think there's any urgency from anyone outside of the music industry to, to look into it. And there's been the blame game between the UK blaming the EU and the EU oh. blaming the UK. And I think we know who we believe on that. Yeah, for sure. Um, but it, yeah, you're right. It's a massive problem and, it, and, it's, and it's not right um, because, you know, I think these creative people have been punished enough over yeah. the past 12 months for you know, for this next hurdle that they've got to overcome once they're allowed out of their, their rooms and their, their isolation. Dave, you started off in retail, working at Virgin Records in Portsmouth. Record stores like Virgin, Tower Records and other local independent record stores were once a mecca, a cultural haven in major cities and towns where anyone who was anyone would congregate to learn the ideas of the day and what was hip and cool, not just in music, but in film, literature, fashion and pop culture, where the people that worked at those places had an encyclopedia knowledge of music to the last detail and wore that badge on their sleeve as if a symbol of religion. And in fact, they were like musical monks and evangelists spreading and instilling the religion who were experts and music lovers 
And I know we spoke about this one before, Dave, but it really was a time when people were judged on their musical tastes, where your music collection was in a way like a private medical records. Going to my local independent record store each Saturday was a religious pilgrimage. As an ardent record collector, it was a magical experience to immerse myself in the the romance and divine luxury of the sight, touch and smell of the circular polyvinyl chloride discs, physically representing each audio waveform, groove cut of the original recording, categorically obsessing over the sleeves to discover who the artists involved were, what the lyrics were, what they meant, where the records were made, who produced them, who crafted the artwork. Every aspect of the record was a work of art. Discovering discovering them was an obsessive and romantic experience. Fast forward a decade later, technology innovated, combined with the economics taking over and the likes of iTunes, Apple and Spotify changed the way that we purchase and consume music through digital streaming. And these services have made it possible to listen to music wherever and whenever we want. Traditional record companies fail to adapt to the digital revolution. The likes of Virgin and HMV completely missed the opportunity to become the musical experience store. In a way, like what the Apple Store did for its technology. HMV and Virgin could have been the equivalent of that for the music industry, but they couldn't see the future coming and failed to adapt and avoid the deadly sins of complacency and greed. They fell asleep at the wheel, got permanently drunk on their own Kool-Aid, lost the plot on who they actually were, got lazy and fat and couldn't see the wood from the trees and all the beasts of prey and making ego-based decisions. Like Kodak, who was so blinded by its dominance in the traditional photography market that it completely missed the rise of digital technologies and that photos would eventually be shared online one day. Kodak certainly had the talent, the money, and the means to make that transition. However, the lack of foresight made them a victim of the aftershock of a disruptive change. Anyway, back to the point, Dave. Do you think there's a future for a physical entity for consumers to experience music in a retail environment? Yeah, I do. I, you know, we see examples of it. Um, and again, there's a lot of it down to goodwill. But like going back to what you were saying, I'm, you know, I know that we've discussed this before, but me working for Virgin in Portsmouth was the... Yeah, you know, I, I started when I was 17, and it was the greatest job I ever had. You know, and you know, yeah. in my career, I've, I've been fortunate enough to do some amazing things. But just being behind the counter and having, you know, God knows how many square feet of floor space we had. Yeah, you know, we probably had about 10, 10,000 square feet of floor space. So we, we had all that vinyl out there that we could just pick and choose. Mm. And because we were because we were the coolest record shop in Portsmouth. <laughs> of course. Um, you know, we, yeah, we, because HMV were on the high street and we were in the, we were in the Tricorn Centre, this brutalist building called the Tricorn that every oh, time I see a picture yeah. of it, I still, <laughs> right. 
Yeah, it's, uh, you know, I st- every time I see a picture of it, I still smell piss because, it, <laughs> like, you know, our, our, um, our, our nightclub was at the top of the, the tricorn and at the bottom of the tricorn with, amongst all this concrete was, uh, was the Virgin Records store. But, and we were, you know, we were the indie store. You know, we were a huge indie store at the end of the day. We had that indie ethic and HMV were the high street retailer and that was good. And we still laugh that, you know, we would refuse very much like um, High Fidelity. We would refuse to sell records to people, even though we had it in stock because it wasn't cool enough for us to touch. So we'd send them to, to HMV across the road and they'd get the, they'd get the business brilliant. for it, which That's didn't go like. down well. Yeah, no, it was. You know, I, I have... I, you know, the first album I, I sold on the on the fifteenth of October, nineteen eighty four, was my first day, and it was the um, the Lionel Richie um, album. Um, can't can't slow down. I think it was called. Yeah. And 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 I was really nervous. I was like breaking the shrink wrap, taking the security card out, um, the security tag out, and I was shaking. And you know, it was probably four ninety nine or something like that. Rung rung it up took the money, gave them the change, took off the receipt, stapled it to the bag, handed it over. And I've, you know, and I've, oh, I've done my first sale. That's great. And they went, Oh, you know, that's really good. And then, you know, a couple of weeks later, said, you know, you could have refused that sale. I'm like, well, what do you mean? Said, well, you know, if you don't think it's credible enough, then, you know, just tell them to go elsewhere. Yeah. And, you know, it was half tongue, tongue in cheek, but it, it was that attitude. And I, I really liked that attitude where it was the Mecca, you know, on a Saturday afternoon. Yeah. In, in those days, the pubs would shut at two, possibly or three. And then they wouldn't reopen until six. So everyone who'd been in the pub on Saturday for lunch, and we'd be there for yeah. our lunch as well, would come back to the record shop, hang out, wait till we got kicked out at half five, or they got kicked out. You know, we'd, we'd cash up and everything, and then we'd be in the pub with them at six o'clock. Yeah. And, and, and that happened every, you know, every week. And we had our gang, and we'd all go out, and we'd go to live gigs and stuff like that. So there was that communal spirit in an amazing city to grow up in where a lot of bands were coming through you know of different sizes you know at this we had this nightclub called granny's at the top of the the you know the top top of the tricorn and it was probably like a 250 capacity then we had ports of poly which is about 600 uh, and then we had the guild hall which i think is 1800 so you know we had a good selection of small medium and bigger size you know rem played ports of guildhall uh, you know the smith played ports of guildhall yeah oh. so um so it was big enough for the you know to attract the, you know, the larger bands yeah so yeah we had that and I, and i think that you know if you look at the the ethic of the the modern record shop um and lots spring to mind you know na- rough trade the natural choice i saw that rough trader moving out of willie uh, willieberg actually in um uh, in new york Are um, they? Okay. yeah i think they made that announcement this week I, I don't think they've disclosed where they're going but the, you know you go to that that rough trade store in williamsburg and it's great and you've got the the venue in there which bowery presents run and and you know again it's a it's a communal place to go yeah. You know, rough trade, you know, you know, in the UK um, and independent stores, you know, I always talk about pie and vinyl in, in Portsmouth because run by friends of mine um, and we, you know, I think we gave them their first in-store. I think we gave them a Howler in-store or and I know we had Ash there at one point and, and stuff. And 
diversification where, okay, they're a record store, um, but could they rely on the income of vinyl sales only? Possibly not. So, you know, the other half of it where they sold pies. So it's called <laughs> pie, and, pie and vinyl. Um, and, you know, the pies were delicious. There was lots of veggie options, lots of vegan options. Yeah. And they bought up this credit, you know, they had this credibility and there's a, um, there's a comedian called Phil Jupiter who yes. wore, he wore a, a pie and vinyl t-shirt on, I think it was Nevermind the Buzzcocks or something like that. And so it, it got onto people's radar. So if it, that sort of diversification and if, if you're running a record shop now and the customer walks in and they feel at ease with it and that, you know, it's not the, the them and us situation, which I'm more than guilty of creating, when people walked into our record shop in 1984 <laughs> to 1987, but they're just like, okay, yeah, you feel, feel relaxed. You might be able to buy a coffee. You might be able to look, read a book. You might be able to sit down and listen to something. Um, you know, th there's a lot of sort of events going on to make them feel wanted. Then, uh, yeah, I, f I feel that you, you can do. And your point about Virgin and our price and HMV not adapting that, that is true, but, there, I don't think there's a way that you can bring streaming into yeah. the high street because your your streaming domain is in your pocket. You know, it's it's on your phone. But I, there's definitely, you know, HMV is still going now, but they've they've gone into receivership three times, and you know the the question was they they went into it because they didn't know what they were. Yeah. You'd go into HMV and you'd see a, you know, I, I saw doormats at HMV once and I was like, what the hell? <laughs> um, and, you know, the, the vinyl selection was getting smaller and then vinyl was on the up and it was getting bigger and CDs were moving to one side. And, and again, they were diversifying, but it just, they couldn't compete. And, and with, with prices, you know, I'll, I'll make this one last point on, on it. My, I, I, I say this to the students as well. If I go into Rough Trade or into Pine Vinyl and um, what I, Sleaford Mods, you know, if I go in and buy the Sleaford Mods album for seventeen pounds, uh, and it's you can get it online for fifteen, or you can get it from Amazon probably for twelve quid or something like that, then me as a consumer, I'm willing to pay the two or three pound twat tax to to keep that that shop in business um because they're they're not buying in bulk like amazon are so they're not getting the discount that amazon are getting the you know and amazon are probably getting it all on sale or return so if i have to give rough trade or pine vinyl an extra three pounds for that for that record where i could get cheaper i'm happy to do that because i know that money will be reinvested into new stock or into the staff's wages or something like that and i think yeah. they as as laughable as the term twat tax sounds, I think it's really important to keep these people alive, really. There's another point, Dave, that you triggered there, and it was around, and I'm speaking in general here, about the, the high street uh, record stores of today. And what's notable is that the staff have become comparatively careless and, and clueless about music. I mean, they do not have the same knowledge or passion at all 
about music and pop culture and it feels it's just like a job yeah and we're just sorry just to interrupt but just on that point you're absolutely right and i used to get really angry about it and then you know some of my students used to work at the local hmv and they would put a different perspective on it that they wouldn't get any training you know they right. were you know and and they were worked to the bone they were on zero hour contracts um and so they had no loyalty at all to what yeah. they were doing. You know, they needed to subsidize their living and, you know, they probably didn't want to be there. And, and I get that. And it goes back to when, I, when we worked at Virgin, if we didn't know the catalogue number for Mike Oldfield, Tubular Bells, V2001, then we would, you know, we would get, they said that we'd get sacked. I never saw anyone get sacked yeah. for it, but you'd get a warning for it because you had to have that product knowledge yeah. because... You, you would get the crazy Vangelis fan coming in. I remember, I distinctively remember this, and I think about it a lot, and I don't know why, but there was a Vangelis freak who used to come in and wanted um, a Japanese import of the Vangelis album. And I, I, I did the customer orders at the time, and, um, and I ordered it for him, managed to find it, got it into the shop, and someone in our... Uh, what you know who was putting all the orders as the orders came in you know the customer orders would be put to one side by mistake it got put out into the racks and god knows how but someone else found saw this vangelis <laughs> japanese import that was you know there's it literally was the last copy in the world and snapped wow. it up and and this vangelis fan freaked out at me absolutely you know as if their house had burnt down. Um, so, you know, we had to deal with Van Kellis fans and <laughs> Iron Maiden fans queuing up for their multi-formats and Queen fans. Yeah. Um, you know, just, and, you know, and we, you know, the other thing, you know, we had to sell the, the Band-Aid record when it came out and, you know, we, we did thousands of that. You know, normally for number one single, we'd we'd knock out two or 300. With Band-Aid, it was thousands. You know, everyone was who you know, was on the high street uh, or on commercial road imports have popped into our record shop to to buy it because they thought that they were doing the right thing. So, um, so yeah, I've gone off track, but that's... <laughs> that's great. That's, that's my point of view. So the other thing that you triggered there as well, Dave, was when you actually went up to transact, like you selected the records you wanted to buy and you went up to the, the cashier and just that anticipation around, God, is the cashier going to approve of my purchase or not? Are they, are they going to have that smug <laughs> smile on their face for like, what, you clueless? <laughs> you know, um, those moments are just magical as you look back, you know. But they just set the bar so high. They really did. And they were total professional at what they did. They were, sorry, total expert at what they did. Yeah. 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 No, it, it, it was. And, you know, and again, it's always a discussion point as well. You know, someone, um, you know, I remember like I used to shop in Virgin for years before I worked there. And it was really important that I got their nod of approval. I remember buying <laughs> the, 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 the first Julian Cope uh, solo album, Well, Shut Your Mouth. And, you know, and I knew that they'd, they'd all approve and, you know, and, I managed to see him live um, on his solo tour before they did. I went to the Guildford show, which was the day before the London show. So I, you know, I had a bit of credibility as well, but you know, I got the mm, nod when, when I took it up to the counter and there was, 
the singles buyer Alison was there and she was a huge damned fan and I was a huge damned fan so I used to make sure that I got served from her when I bought anything by the damned to get that that approval but also opened up conversations you know you would talk about this record oh this is a great record and if you like them have you heard this you know it's like the the Amazon algorithm you know people who bought this like also you know listened to this or bought this you know we were the we were the human non-AI version of that and and when we recommend things to people, people would listen and, and take a chance on it. And sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't. Yeah. Um, so it, it really was, you know, it's part of that customer service, as rude as right. we were and as hungover as we were sometimes and how desperate <laughs> we were to get out of the shop some nights to go to the pub. You know, we had that rapport with people and not even with sort of cool things. You know, there people were coming in to buy chart records and yeah. we would, you know, and, and it was clearly wasn't for them. It was there for their niece or their granddaughter. And we give them the sort of, yeah, you know, th- this is right for the person that you're buying this for. And, and, you know, and if it's not right, keep the receipt and bring it back and, you know, and, and, and we're exchanging it, you know, that, that, that interaction with them was, was really important. And, and, you know, I love that. And I think that's yeah. why, lecturing sort of dealing with students you've got that human interaction with people and it was the same with retail um but you know with retail i'm sure that anyone who's listening to this who's been in retail after three years he just want to punch people yeah <laughs> i've realized that every time i answer a question i'm closing my eyes and picturing the scenario that you can tell you, you, you can yeah. tell and you're, you're, the, the tone and the, the the affection in your voice really really comes through as well it's great there you go what will the future music artists look like and what will they be, Dave? Um, I don't know. I Again, I think I'm the wrong person to ask. And, you know, one of the things that, you know, I'm talking to you about, we've been talking about for a long time is the next step of my journey where, you know, I want to start mentoring young managers who have young artists into the industry because I, I still don't think there's enough young young people coming through. And I think that 2020 and 2021 is probably the, the best time for these people to make their mark and their impact. Yeah. So yeah. it's down to them at the end of the day. Um, I think it can be anything. You know, it can come from TikTok. Um, it can be someone who's collaborating with someone someone working in a really sort of specific music genre um it just it's it's obviously social media led they they have to appeal to their target demographic at the end of the day if you want to sort of whittle it down to that um but for me my age group it always be people who love music and um and you know there's a lot of the a lot of bands that are coming through or have been coming through over the past couple of years you know when they talk about math rock and and things like that like black midi you know i i love black midi because you know i'm not really a jazzer but the way that these young young men have come into and found a band where they just hit it off and it's magical to watch and uh, and it's inspiring. I just hope it's more of that, really. Like people who who aren't doing it by numbers to say, if we tick that box, if we tick that box, if we tick that box, then we're going to get a million streams, which means that yeah. we can get onto this. It's just like the people who 
who love what they're doing and they don't care if they don't have any streams, um, but they, you know, they've got a real passion for it and they want to learn for it and they want to grow an audience. I, I think there's plenty of those coming through and, um, you know, and I hope, you know, they get to have a, a live side uh, to it as, as quickly as possible. The live side is really important, um, but you have to think about it. Again, we had a, a discussion with a, festival promoter today and it's just like i think any band who's playing in 2021 should consider doing a package tour because mm. you can't get availability at venues at the moment because they're all going to be booked up because no one's been able to play for over a year um there's going to be too much selection for punters so why don't you put two or three great bands together yeah. and take less on the fee because you've got to split up the, the ticket income between two or three get uh, uh bands but you know you could probably have a higher ticket price because you've got free quality acts there yeah. so you get some of that back you probably have a, a full show so there's more chance of selling merch so it's just i think it's sort of keep it keep it evolving really i don't think there's any set formula yeah. um you know you know the future music artist should be someone who either has a really good overview of what they're doing or has the ability to find someone or the ability themselves to put a really excellent team around them to, to maximize every opportunity. That's great. Hey, the, the point as well that you mentioned, you're, you're about to embark on your next um, stage of your, your, your journey, Dave. And I think looking back as well, when you, the, the, the career that you've had, you started in retail, you went into label management and then um, artist management and, you've stood on the shoulders of some serious giants, you know, as well as they have stood on yours, right? As you've looked back and you've had great mentorship, you've given great mentorship, you've acquired lots of experience from a depth and breadth perspective across the industry. What are the key principles that you're going to infuse within your new um, agency and business as you move forward? And it would be great to hear your philosophy around what your new project is going to be. The, three, the philosophy is to, because I'm, um, I spoke to someone the other day about my my vision for for the new company, and and obviously I'm the artist manager now. I'm you know I've been in artist management since 2003, I think. So you know, long enough time to be doing it. And I was giving him this sort of the, the vision of, of what it's about. And he said, it sounds as if you want to put yourself out of a job. And it's like, it is. That's exactly what I want to do. You know, I'm, I'm 54 at the moment. And, you know, I've managed to make a living out of music since I left school. And I'm very lucky and grateful for it. Um, and I still think there's a place for me within the industry. But more importantly there's a place for younger people to come through and be dynamic and, and totally understand TikTok, totally understand Twitch, you know, whatever the next format is or platform is to, to exploit it. You know, I've been speaking to my artists this week about doing a podcast through Anchor, through Spotify, because if you use Anchor, it's really good editing software, but also once yeah. you upload the music to, to Spotify, Spotify licensed the track on your podcast for you so that you're doing it legally and you can play the full track rather than 30 seconds, little things like that. I, I want to bring these young people through and give them the opportunity and mentor them for a year 
so that we can set up their business, we can structure their business, we can find them their artists, we can find the mentorship, we can find them their income streams, and we can help them find their feet. So after that first year, they're ready to go or they go into a bigger management company or they might get moved into a different part of the industry. But that's that's what I want to do. That you know, the philosophy is is to nurture and encourage these young people from any background, whether they're post-grads, whether they come from a deprived background and they haven't had the opportunity, but just to have that goodwill that I think I can, I can trade yeah. off and, uh, and to give them the confidence that they can compete with the, you know, the, the older and theoretically wiser individuals who are, who are in the, in the industry at the moment i don't want you know i'm not trying to get rid of them i don't want it to be a cull but yeah. i want them to be in there to compete with them so that there's there's a younger wave coming through really that i think that's that's the whole purpose of it that's excellent and i like the fact there that you're kind of taking the baton and you're giving it back to the next generation of aspiring music artists and you know obviously passing on your kind of knowledge and experience but also just enabling them to really find themselves and nurture their kind of talents as well and help get yeah. them to, to the best start possible for, for them. I think that's great. Yeah. And I, I think they can bring that enthusiasm because little things like I yeah. remember going onto a tour bus for the first time and it's like, this is the greatest thing in my life. And, <laughs> and, you know, and I look at it now, it's like, it's just a bus with beds and I never want to sleep in a coffin sized bunk again um, because I don't need to, you know, I've been like, yeah. you know, I've been on, hundreds of tour buses and I've had great experiences, but I don't want to do that anymore. You know, I don't want to take the long haul flight to Australia to do a, a week long tour because I don't, don't need to do it. But these young people would love the opportunity yeah, exactly. like, to see, to see the world and, and to make those connections with it. And, and that's what I want. You know, I don't want to be the, the grumpy man who hasn't been upgraded. <laughs> um, you know, it, like it's, it's for these people to, to learn and, uh, and find, fresh ideas and fresh enthusiasm to sort of plow into again, not just the music industry, but the creative industries and probably external industries as well. Based on what you know and sense now, what do you predict the future trends in the music industry to be? And I know you've touched on this kind of throughout, but just kind of bringing it together. What would you say those two or three key predictions are? Future trends. Again, it's, it's hard because I rely on, technology and startups to to do that for me um they for me there's there's not a lot that we need what i need now i think we've got everything you know the technology that we've got can be simplified or or made more economically to sort of buy um, but it's about the platforms, really. I, I like the fact that despite all of this and streaming going through the roof and going into sort of emerging markets and stuff like this, I, I love the fact that vinyl's still growing. Um, and that makes me laugh because, you know, there's there's nothing better than, you know, playing a, a piece of vinyl and, and and you know, and really sort of getting the warmth from it. You know? So we, you know, we can rely on that. But again, you know, 
one of my students is doing his first Twitch broadcast on Sunday and I'm going to be watching that and I'm excited about that for, for him and, and for me because I'm going to learn from it. I'm going to be excited about putting this podcast up on Monday with with Wesley Gonzalez. So uh, it's just the opportunities that we present and and to be given the time. I haven't had that because of, you know, I've been in a, in a, a very busy full-time job over the past four years where, which I, I love and I'm not going to complain about it, but I haven't had the time to actually sit down and research something or read yeah. properly. You know, my, you know, I have to find time to read at the end of the day and I'm too tired and I, and I hate that. You know, I know you're exactly the same way, you know, the, the amount that you research and, and read and, and you get these ideas from you know, I'm, I'm, I want to do that and I want to encourage these younger people to do their research and read and read that interview in MBW or CMU. You know, go on to Music Ally and, and see what the, the latest report says. You know, have a look at the IFPI report and see what's happening with global sales. All of that is just having that knowledge and, and being able to do something with it. I, you know, I just hope that the industries keep chucking this information and... Uh, and technology as that we can we can also cut through you have been listening to the unknown origins podcast please follow subscribe rate and review us for more information go to unknownorigins.com thank you for listening